Hey, welcome to the Zoo Town Podcast. Our hope for this podcast is to promote healthy conversation on a variety of topics. Just wanted to let you know that this particular podcast has some mature content being discussed. So if you listen with your kids or certain topics trigger you, just be aware of that. But beyond that, we really hope this gets you thinking and talking and that you enjoy it. So without further ado, here's the Zootown Podcast. So my goal originally was to go into the Air Force, become a cop, come back and become a state trooper. And came back and I settled for my local police department. Um, the captain at the time wanted me to go to school and get my associate's degree, which really wasn't a big deal to ask of me, but I was offended by it, seeing that, you know, I just served as a cop in the greatest Air Force in the world. There shouldn't be any reason why you can't take me as I am with some training, like, you know, on-job training, whatever the case may be. Right. And uh, she left the conversation with, if you really want to be here, you'll do it. And I was so frustrated. I never went back. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess we, we we both wouldn't be here if we didn't make those decisions either. Sometimes, right. so. <laughs> <God had> his... <laughs> yeah. so I'm actually going int- to. That's the intro to this uh, podcast now. So, uh, where'd you grow up, brother? First off, to our audience, this is Father Samuel Davis, um, and how I met him was through Father Jarmus. And so, Father Jarmus, yeah. uh, if you're listening to this podcast, he has been on this podcast, and he also came and preached at Zootown. Uh, and while he was here, he found out how crazy I was. And he says, I know the perfect guy for you. <laughs> and so he introduced me to Father Samuel Davis. And so thank you for joining us today on the show, man. Appreciate it. No problem. No problem. So, so what was that first question? So where, where'd you grow up? Where'd you grow up? Okay, so I grew up in Somerset, New Jersey, which I jokingly tell people was Pleasantville, USA. Okay. Um, if you look up our town's past, our town was a sun downtown. Uh, historically. What does that mean? Um, well, Sundown Town means that during Reconstruction and Jim Crow, all the way up to, let's say, maybe about the early 70s, you could, the side of the town that I live in today, you could not be in after Sundown if you were Black or Latino. Oh, dang. Yeah, so it's kind of funny that I ended up moving from one side of the town no, to the other. Um, my parents moved here in 1984, uh, from Brooklyn, New York, uh, prior to us moving out here from about, I believe it was from 77 to about 1980. There were constant race riots in the town, uh, and in the high school. So like I said, if, if it was 43, 44, 45 years ago, and let's say, you know, it's the summer, it's around eight o'clock on this side of town, uh, I would have got my behind whooped. Yeah to uh, wherever the Lemon Street was, which is like right, maybe like a five minute drive from where my house is. It was kind of ironic that that happened, especially that my parents are immigrants. I'm like a first generation American. Oh, really? Uh, and yeah, my parents are from Colombia and Panama. Oh, goodness, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I grew up here from 84, graduated in, uh, from Franklin High School here in 1998. So this is why I call, we jokingly call the town Pleasantville, um, for Franklin Township, because in 1980, uh, the township itself had had enough of the racial tension and pretty much did a social project where they uh, uh, purposely integrated the town. So by the time we got here in 84, I would say the population was maybe about 
uh, 70-30 from white American to black American. Um, by the time I graduated high school, those numbers had changed, maybe give or take five to 10% either way. And now the 30 to 40% was more than just black Americans, it was black Americans, Latinos, and uh, Hindis and, and, uh, and Arab families that had moved into the area. Um, after graduating from high school, I went to, to the University of Valley Forge, which is an Assemblies of God Bible College. Uh, this is like why I joke about uh, how did I end up becoming an Eastern Orthodox priest, having that uh, charismatic non-denominational. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, after attending there, after two years, I would say uh, I took the first steps of coming towards orthodoxy. I was in the Assemblies of God doctrines class, and they have 16 truths that on the surface level that they hold to that every member of the Assemblies of God uh, should know or must know. Yeah. And then after that, I believe it was about 230 or 241 articles. I'm not sure. I don't remember the exact number uh, that they adhere to. Um, some of these things are bridges between uh, the Orthodox Church and this Pentecostal uh, denomination or confession, whatever term you want to use that fits for you. Um, but it was while in this class, I had this stirring experience. I remember my professor, who was a missionary uh, at the time, was speaking about these 16 truths. And while I heard it, I was like, there's something I couldn't express what it was, but there was something inside of me telling me that this was dead wrong. <laughs> um, I, like you I have to speak in tongues to be saved or, or filled with the spirit? No, it was something silly. Like we had got up to the point where they had shared that the Azusa Street Revival was the fulfillment of the prophet Joel's prophecy. And I was like, that's completely wrong. Yeah. Like, even then, even though I wasn't Orthodox, and I always share this with people about how I came into the faith, as I, I, I will not support the idea of predestination, but I do believe that the Holy Spirit places markers uh, that's the correct word I want to use inside of our lives, inside of our hearts that kind of like push us in a certain direction by uh, the elders or mentors that we might have had and the seeds that they planted um, in our lives through their ministries. I just knew like, there was, there's something wrong with that. And it just kept stirring and stirring. And it got to the point that uh, I pretty much blurted out of my mouth. Like it was like, I guess it was just like boiling up and stirring. And it <laughs> yeah. finally. And I said, uh, I will never preach this at any time. Hmm. And a couple of guys in the class turned around and was like, well, why are you here? This is what somebody said, God's school. This is what we believe. <laughs> um, blah, blah, blah. And I I calmed down and I explained. I said, it makes no sense that the Azusa Street Revival is supposed to be the fulfillment of the prophet Joel's uh, prophecy. We know that's Pentecost. Yeah, and, and for our audience, he said, yeah. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That was the... Right. Yeah. Exactly. So I was like, this is one one experience that happened, I believe, of five uh, revival movements here in North America. I said, but more importantly, I was like, the Holy Spirit was given to the church once to seal the church. So this is the part that I laugh about because I'm I'm sharing something that's orthodox at 20 years old, not knowing that I'm going to end up becoming 
an Eastern Orthodox priest. Hmm. And I just left the classroom that day, very disgruntled, questioning whether or not I was going to continue my education there. Um, and it was that was my last semester there at the University of Valley Forge. How did that go, though? Uh, like when everyone like you were kind of an outsider at that point, were you? Yes and no. Um, I think like pretty much midway through my first semester there, people knew that, okay, this guy didn't grow up uh, in the Assemblies of God. And, you know, the people that were from the New Jersey district made it a point to make me feel at home. At the same time, it was also because of the relationship with my pastor. Uh, he was one of the eight guys uh, in the Assemblies of God. He had like transitioned out of um, their urban missions department, if you want to call that. Was he a and black like, dude or a white guy? Yeah, black guy. Oh, okay. He had, he had transitioned out of that stigma and was now in like the Assemblies of God proper as a mover and shaker. So I believe it was because of our relationship I was getting partially part of this uh, special treatment. Okay. But that day, I, I'll tell you this much, that day I was reminded um, that I was an outsider. And uh, I didn't return that fall. I had some academic issues also uh, that semester. I didn't return. I stayed home, um, started working in corporate America. I worked at a pharmaceutical lab uh, here in Somerset. And probably about six months to a year into that, I started making a decision that, you know, I need to move swiftly and make a decision on how am I going to finish my college degree. And uh, I had made up my mind that I was going to get to the military. Um, so my goal, like I said originally, was just to get money for school, uh, become a cop in the Air Force, which I was going to uh, into the New Jersey State Police Department. And I uh, had an incredible time in the military, learned a lot uh, about discipline, purpose, leadership skills. Uh, of course, I did my uh, basic training and uh, what we call our tech school training, the police academy in San Antonio. So imagine... You know, a kid from Jersey, I spent about six to seven months in San Antonio that year between um, basic training and tech school. And I was one of the first people on my team that received my orders, which was like a big deal because people would brag about where they were going. Okay. And uh, of all places, I got kept with like Iceland. And I was so upset initially. I was like, this is going to suck. I don't want to be here. I definitely don't want to go to this duty station. Well, I'm sorry, and where was it? You kind of cut out real quick. Where was it? In Keflavik, Iceland. Oh, Iceland. Oh, God, yeah. I didn't see California. I was like, no, California, no. I mean, a little liberal for me, but I, it's not that bad. Yeah. <laughs> not that bad. I mean, Iceland. <laughs> you know, I was I was so uh, disappointed later on, found out that Iceland is just a beautiful country, uh, beautiful culture. I uh, had an incredible experience while I was there. I lived there for about uh, two and a half years. Um, you know, my wife and I got married going into my second year there. Okay. And my son was born, uh, I would say three or four months before we left. Did you meet her in the military? No, we, we'd known each other since we were about six years old, six or seven years old. My dad was her pastor. Oh my goodness. Yeah. There's a funny, funny story about that. My parents first home is not too far from here. And my dad, uh, had hosted a church like cookout at our home and all those kids were playing tag and there's a tree in front of the house, which is supposed to be home base. And uh, my wife, Julie stayed there 
because I'd like chase her the entire day. Um, it's funny. I told her family that she was my girlfriend. And I was going to marry her. And it was funny to see how years later that all happened. Like everything came uh, full circle. We joke about it now. Like our freshman year in college, um, towards like the middle of that first semester, we were both dating and kept bumping into each other like repeatedly for that first first year of school and uh, didn't reconnect and see each other until both of us got out of our, you know, former relationships. Hmm. And now today have been married 19 years and five children. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. So you went to Iceland yeah. second year uh, right. when you got married. What happened after that? Well, you know what? While she was pregnant, um, I was flipping through the channels. There, there isn't a lot. When I was there, there wasn't a lot to do in Iceland. Like once you go see the glaciers, the waterfalls, uh, you go to one or two, you know, to the you hit the cultural spots, the restaurants. At uh, that time for me, the clubs, um, there really wasn't much left to do. Yeah. And one, uh, we were watching TV. I was flipping through the channels and uh, they had Praise the Lord on their cable network um like pto the... yeah <laughs> nice and the funny thing is, i had not watched ptl um as a charismatic for, let's say at that point maybe 10 years the last time i'd probably watched ptl was maybe uh towards the end of maybe middle school my freshman year huh. you know, in high school but i paused i saw this gentleman preaching he was wearing a red cassock had this jeweled cross hanging around his neck. And I was like, I want to watch this. Like how, you know, not knowing about the Orthodox Church, I said, how did this Roman Catholic priest uh, get on here? Uh, he was a Vagante Archbishop, uh, Veron Ash. Uh, Father Andrew and I have a common experience in that we both saw him preach. Of course, by that time, Father Andrew was already uh, an Orthodox priest in the church. Um, but the the title of the message uh, Pastor Scott, Dan, when you guys get an opportunity, watch it. It's still on YouTube. It's called Prerequisites of His Presence. Hmm. Uh, Reverend Ash did an incredible job sharing about the the common grounds uh, within the Orthodox faith between uh, Orthodoxy and, let's say, being charismatic. He had made this joke that he's like, you all think that you really can praise and worship uh you guys don't know how to praise and worship. You know, go to an Ethiopian Orthodox uh, worship service on a feast day. Yeah, the yeah. service is hours long of worship and praise. And I, I ended up finding out later on, years later, that he was right. I went to a local uh, Eastern Orthodox uh, parish here in uh, in New Jersey, in Inglewood, and their feast day was about a six and a half hour celebration. <laughs> Man. I got there late, and it was still going on uh, later on, and plus, like you know, a, a coffee hour afterwards. But I was so moved by the sermon that at the end of the sermon, I prayed, and I asked our Lord, I said, if you allow me to experience what he's speaking about, I'll do whatever you want me to do Wow! for the rest of my life. I was so moved, like praying with tears in my eyes and everything. Does he know this? And, Have you ever shared that with him? Reverend Ash, no, we we had he's passed away now. I think about six years. Okay, had a cancer. Uh, we've had like two quick conversations uh, in the 
he was trying to like you know get stronger and healthier uh with this cancer but i never had the opportunity to share that but i did share it with his um with his assistant who's now like the new patriarch of his bagante uh confession but uh i preached the next sunday i had like a blessing to uh preach in in the uh, chapel okay for the charismatic uh, service and to be honest with you, Pastor Scott, I was I was so moved. I felt uncomfortable preaching that morning. Like this sermon moved me so much that I felt I knew within my heart that there was something that I had missed along the way after hearing uh, this gentleman's sermon. Yeah, so you felt uh, like you were on holy ground. You were on holy ground. Pretty much, mm-hmm. pretty much. Um, service was incredible. Someone rededicated their life to the Lord. It was a great experience and as soon as i got back home i called his mission parish and i said what do i need to do in order to become an orthodox christian now the funny thing is looking back on that 18 years ago uh by the answers that they gave me i should have known or i would have known and say should i would have known that they were a bagante confession and not truly orthodox okay it was like the generalizations like oh read the orthodox way by metropolitan Kalisto Square. <laughs> Remember, who just passed away this week. Solid, solid guy. Yeah, Yeah, read um, the Apostolic Fathers. And even though those are things that I may refer to a person today as an Orthodox priest, but that's not the initial thing that you share with someone, (coughs) excuse me, if they want to become an Orthodox Christian. Now, the funny thing about that prayer is like when you pray those type of prayers, you have to pay your vow. So my wife and I and my son got home that fall and the church that we joined this gentleman preached there six times within our first year there so i'm constantly being reminded wait the same dude that you saw in ptl oh man i'm constantly being reminded about this and um this is about almost two years later uh our first daughter was born morgan and uh i was doing security in this hospital and there was a Coptic priest who was doing, um, he just was doing his rounds. You know, as a priest, there were newly born babies. We were in the uh, in the uh, newborn department. And uh, after meeting with the mothers and babies, I saw him, you know, can you please speak to me about, you know, how do I become an Orthodox Christian? And what was supposed to be like a two or three minute conversation, because he was supposed to leave the hospital and go somewhere else, ended up being like a 35 to 45 minute conversation. Uh, and he said, don't worry about it. I'm going to send you two books. Um, I still have them. One is called Comparative Faith of the Coptic Orthodox Church. And the other one was the History of the Coptic Orthodox Church. And uh, now I would say it was maybe five or six late, five or six years later after that prayer that I was finally making the commitment to go to an Orthodox parish. So uh I'm sorry I don't mean to interrupt you but what how did your wife react to that? Um you know the funny part of the story is is that the day that my son and I were made altar servers she had thought I joined a cult. <laughs> a cult? She was sold that I had joined a cult. There was you know the um the the ancient church tradition the orthodox tradition of receiving the priest or bishop's blessing, you know, there were about 50 boys, and I might, I could be exaggerating, but it, it was a huge number of little boys 
no, from age, let's say five to eight, that were made uh, altar boys that day. And there's like swarms of kids coming out the altar uh, to receive the blessing from our bishop at that time, Amber David. And she was like, why is my son kissing this man's hand? Yeah, yeah. With wizard beard. <laughs> what are all these boys doing? What did you put my kids into? Are we in Lord of the Rings? What's happening right now? <laughs> right? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what she referred to. Yeah. Um, and it was, it took a while. My my children and I were Orthodox, I think, for about three years before she came into the faith. Hmm. And how? And she grew up obviously assemblies of God because that was. No, 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 no. We weren't. We weren't assemblies of God. We were just non-denominational. Oh, okay. I thought because you said your dad was. Yeah, typical non-denominational independent pastor. You know, a mixture of uh, a Baptist and Pentecostal uh, beliefs and doctrines, and then maybe like a a tenth or maybe a quarter of what he personally um, held himself to doctrinally. But, was she there? Um, I mean, so she was there that day and just a little freaked no, no, out? I sent her a video of it. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She wasn't ready to become, you know, Orthodox at the time. Okay. Um, but, I mean, it's been an incredible ride since then. I mean, we started um, our mission parish there in the beginning, um, sadly because of the ethnic trappings of the Orthodox faith here in America, which I don't. I don't fault most ethnic churches for this because I understand as a first generation American, you know, you're coming to this country um, for better opportunity. People are leaving their home countries for various reasons, whether, especially on the, in the Orthodox sense, right. Uh, some of their countries have been ravaged by war, communism, you know, anything that you can think of that's on the list. And <clears throat> When you're coming to America as an immigrant, you're always going to want to preserve your culture, your language, your experience here in this country. And it's something like even recently my wife and I were talking about it and she was saying, you know, she didn't feel comfortable in some Greek Orthodox um, Greek Orthodox parishes because the majority of the service, if not all of it, is in Greek. And I'd share with like, I never had a problem with it. And she was like, why? I said, because of our background, um, being Panamanian, there is a large uh, Panamanian community in Brooklyn, New York, where we're from, uh, where I said, if they became Orthodox, I know for a fact that the services, preaching, you know, everything you can think of would be in Spanish. Right. And, right. If, and if anyone came from a different uh, ethnic group or culture, we're not going to bend to that person is just what we do as immigrants. So I understand. And also for me, I never had a problem with celebrating the liturgy uh, all in Greek, although I don't speak it. I do, you know, responses in English while I'm there. The few times I've served in Greek Orthodox parishes, but I, I moved in my heart by it because this was the language that the apostles used. Right. You know, this is what we heard as a community of people you know, from the first century up until this day, what's been preserved in the church. So those things never bothered me. I under, I understand when people don't have the same sentiment, but that's where I'm at personally uh, with that when it comes to uh, Arabic and Greek. Like the first Christian spoke these languages. I don't have a problem. Yeah, but don't you uh, think since the King James Version is the most authoritative version that he spoke English? 
little jab little jab there (laughs) no i totally get what you're saying and that's 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 i think that's where um i totally respect you man especially because you're not from america but you get america because you've been Mm -hmm. here for so long but you also see the the you know eastern tradition bringing that together and as i follow you online by the way, follow Father Jarmus or excuse me, Father Samuel on uh, Instagram. I just love your style, man, because you're so balanced <laughs> because you have that background. Like uh-huh. you call out racial stuff all the time because that was yeah. your experience. And I'm sure you get called woke, right? You get called woke. You get called the progressive. You get called all I, those names. Hear the most idiotic things. Well, I, I'll say I've heard since becoming Orthodox. I believe it'll be 13 years um, this September 20th. I have heard the most nonsensical, idiotic uh, accusations of my stance before people even ask, well, Father Sam, or before then, just Samuel, like, how do you feel about this subject? Um, For example, there were issues like in Ferguson, during Ferguson years ago, uh, during the Obama administration, mm-hmm. people see there's this black guy, you have a black president, you know, he has to be a liberal. And I was speaking about these issues that were going on in Ferguson. I've made clear, these what's going on in Ferguson has very little to do uh, with whether or not you have a right-winged or left-winged slant. Hmm. This has to do with the benign neglect of our government, period, on both sides. And I expressed that I got called woke, I got called a liberal, an extreme leftist, everything that you can think of, I was called. And then the leftists, when they found out how conservative I was, called me a bigot, um, <laughs> changed my race, yeah. you know. Homophobe, all the, all the terms, yeah. Every term that you can think of, and I laugh about it, and I don't, I want to make it, make it clear, I don't find it, um, you know, because of our evangelical background, I don't toy around with how, you know, in our past, how evangelicals have used the morals and ethics of our faith to place that upon our political stance. Right. I was lucky enough with my dad being a veteran, um, not to look at politics as just this idea of how great our nation is, but be able to look at our nation holistically. You know, we have these things um, that we have not yet addressed right. in our country. For example, I was talking to two new converts who wanted to interview me on this very same subject when it comes to race in the church. And I said, we're not going to have... I was just speaking about the Orthodox experience in America. Right. And I said, sure, we're not going to have a unified church among our various ethnic jurisdictions until we as a church uh, examine and call out the issue of race, prejudice, bigotry, and white supremacy in our country. Um, I know for many of our ethnic jurisdictions, excuse me, it's a foreign experience, but not for the Greek, the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese. You know, out of the seven ethnic groups that 
came here in America during the big immigration explosion a hundred years ago that brought so many Orthodox uh, Christians into the country. Greeks used to be called, Greeks and Syrians used to be called N-words. Right. White Anglos. And both ethnic groups worked very hard to be received as white. So now that we're, you know, three, four, five generations in, we forget about these things. Hmm. But I don't fault these two ethnic groups, um, especially that we're Orthodox uh, brothers. But this is what you do as an immigrant. You assimilate into the country and you build your own community. So when you look at the Syrians and the Lebanese that are Orthodox, Greeks that are Orthodox, they have practiced and will continue to practice group economics when it comes to their social experience, their political experience, and their religious experience. And they don't have, they really don't have interactions outside of their community. Hmm. So there's one thing that I've, um, I've sat there and I've shared with people concerning uh, the need to address this issue uh, here in America is that we need to take a look at what our immigrant brothers and sisters have done. And when it comes to addressing race in America, it might be time um, to employ those means. So when you say, you know, I, so first off, I love your personal story. Um, but we also have an audience. Okay. So as I've kind of shared with you a little bit, I'll share with this audience. Cause we got a lot of people listening across the country too, but Zootown has been through a huge change. We've basically left evangelicalism. Um, and in many ways, uh, but we also try to hold on to the good. We try to, we're not, we don't want to be as father Jarmus has told me, don't become what you hate. <laughs> so, right, exactly. um, you, I want to find the good. Um, but like you said, when you say white supremacy, that's a trigger word. It just right, is exactly. and not for me, not for, it doesn't for me, but one, I just, I live in Montana, so we have native Americans. We don't really have many black people, but we got native Americans. And I've always said like, the way we screwed it up was when we came and we evangelized the Native Americans, we made them cut their hair, wear suits, and become white. Like, Absolutely. If I could, I mean, may, I probably would have done the same thing because I'm a sinner, but like, if, if we go back, you know, 400 years ago or 200 years ago, I would have said, keep your dances, keep your headdresses, right. but dedicate them to the Lord Jesus Christ because that's, what, that's who you've been actually seeking this entire time. So mm -hmm. that's a realization I came to, but as a black man that word triggers people because white people think then like, I don't hate people. Like I don't hate black people. I don't hate Mexicans. I don't hate this. So what do you mean when you say white supremacy? Cause this would be super helpful for our audience. Great. This is a great question. I'm glad you, you touched on it a bit when it comes to missions and evangelism as Christians. Um, and you were in the air force, so you don't hate America, obviously. No, <laughs> yeah. not at all. Yeah. And that was, that was one of the biggest accusations that bothered me the most. I was like, if I hate America, why would I serve the country in, a mil in our military? You know, I would never have taken that oath if I hated America. Would right. it be if I hated America? I have the choice between two countries I can go back home to. Um, the I, I, I'll use it in general terms when it comes to the idea of white supremacy, and it's just at its basic of where it was born out of by the Franks. This is something that whenever I come out to Zoo Town, we can talk about Amen. this like in a Bible. Um, the and I'll I'll give the religious connotation of what happened to the West in Christianity. And this is a the free this is a free podcast. Like our guests can swear. What, so I'm just okay. saying, like you can say whatever you want, bro. Okay. 
Okay, good. So, yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I don't mean you have to so swear. You, I just mean like you don't have to sugarcoat things on this podcast. Okay, good. I won't, I won't sugarcoat this. All right. But when it comes to the conflict between the Christian East and the Christian West, it was never necessarily against Constantinople and Rome. It was Constantinople against the people who conquered Rome, which were the Franks. Okay. And the Franks introduced to Western Europe the idea of white supremacy. This is where we got the idea of, uh, or the foundations of deism, where the man of privilege, the man of wealth was the center of the universe. Hmm. So I'm taking a broad stroke because of time, but even the, uh, the results of white supremacy has affected poor whites and working class whites. Because you're not part of the plan, right? You're not part of the interests of uh, the wealthy and elite here in America that subscribe to these things. Uh, for example, um, three years ago, was it? I think it was three years ago. I was asked to speak at our uh, alumni's retreat, and I had not even graduated yet at St. Tegan's uh, Theological Orthodox Seminary, and I had shared that point on on the idea of what it means to be white in America has very little to do with color. It has more so to do with economic and social status. And this, do, you, so are, is, do you combine the terms then systematic racism with that in a way? Yeah. Okay. Good. For example, the average white family in Montana, like you said, mm -hmm. uh, you're not racist, you love Native Americans, you love black people, you love Latinos. Uh, that family is not thinking about or has an experience of racism or prejudice in their life and social experience. Yeah, we don't know. As, we don't know. Fact, yeah. No, not only do you not know, but they don't have a place to be racist or prejudiced. Racism and prejudice is rooted in the, in the idea of authority and power to be able to control the well-being and destiny of another people. So yep. like I shared earlier about sundown towns. Yes, there were poor whites and working class whites in the South and even here in New Jersey in the Northeast that um, enforced those laws or the laws that we had in our country's past that you could not have um, an inter-ethnic relationship. I hate the term interracial because the fact that we are one race. Right. Uh, this is not even something that's a social dynamic. This is in the scripture. St. Paul tells us that out of one blood, all of humanity was made. So I've, you know, I've learned this from, you know, in my past, I used to host uh, parties in nightlife. And I was uh, sitting down with one of the families that I was hosting this evening, and they were actually real Anglo-Saxons. I'd share this with my, uh, with my fellow seminarians and alumni I just alumni retreat, and uh, they said to me flat out, we do not deal with common white Americans. And they were very <laughs> forthright about it. Um, I was so shocked to hear the things <laughs> that came out of their mouths. He said, they, they're not our people. <laughs> I was so shocked. But that's when I got, you know, my first uh, real reality check on what race uh, and prejudice and bigotry is really all about in America. And it has more so to do with economic and social status than anything else. 
And can, can, you, can you pinpoint that? I, I'm sorry to keep interrupting you, but this is super important. No, it's okay. When you say or, when you say that, like, how do you describe that? Like, how is the system set up to oppress? Uh, well, you're not. You're saying not just people of color, right? Right. So how? Because that's the word systematic racism. That that's such a trigger word. But right. how is the system set up in that mm-hmm. way? I, I blame our politicians for that, for not addressing the issue and our media. For example, I'll use redlining and the results of the GI Bill after World War II, right? Yeah. My parents got that. <laughs> okay. See, so World War II vets that were black and Latino uh, dedicated their lives to serving in the United States military because everyone hated, and rightfully so, hated Nazis and hated Hitler's agenda it affected us all right but also there's benefits to serving the military which is the gi bill so many of us when we come into uh let's say we're going back 70 years ago or so during world war ii a lot of those soldiers that served came from poor to working poor families their descendants today are middle class to upper middle class or at least should be if they did the right things financially right how did this happen? It happens through home ownership. The black and Latino soldiers that came back from World War II because of racism were denied their GI bills. So they went to apply for college and trade school, could not go to trade school. Oh, man. Could not go to college. Could not attain homes, although they had served and some came home, home some came home as decorated soldiers from World War II where white American peers were allowed to do so. Hmm. So imagine somebody's grandfather or great-grandfather served uh, during World War II, a white family, let's say it's the Smith family, and they were able to buy a home for, let's say, $10,000 back then. That house today is worth a million dollars. Right, right. So you've now placed the million dollars in a family that allows them to now move from, you know, working poor status of a United States veteran 75 years ago to now depending on what state or region they are in the country to now middle class to upper middle class to even a rich family. Right. In the instance, because of that decision, that was based on Jim Crow laws of semi-slavery and segregation. So, <clears throat> And you held back two generations of people. Exactly. So this is like where we're able to pinpoint these things that are not just talking points of uh, liberal politicians. And when you put them on a spot, they're not able to answer the question. Well, because they just they they want the votes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. They just want the votes and don't want to do anything about the actual issue. This is why it never gets beyond that statement of uh, systemic racism or white supremacy. Another example is redlining, where... Uh, let's say that you're, you know, you have most of the black neighborhoods here in America are, are self-built or community-built neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So uh, you see part of the city might not be developed. Uh, white investors come into an area, they might sell a church, they might sell a community center, might sell property. And what happens with gentrification? The property value goes up. And within, let's say, about five to 10 years, each of those black families have been pushed out of that same town. Uh, the property value doubles, sometimes even triples, yeah. 
And then the children or grandchildren of those families who originally moved there now can't afford to move in, move back into the neighborhood that they were born and raised in. An example of this currently is what's going on uh, in East New York and Brooklyn, New York. Uh, like I said, like my parents, uh, we lived there the first four years of my life, uh, my sister and I. And if you go to downtown Brooklyn, you go to East New York, it is filled with hipsters now. And the rent is through the roof. But it, it goes back to um, what I share uh, socially. I don't mean that in the political leaning, but socially in our parish when it comes to families that are coming to us. I say, if you practice group economics, you can preserve uh, your community. Right. Or we can go in, you know, as a church, we can go into a striving, a poor to striving Black or Latino a neighborhood and turn it around. And this is like what I see about true evangelism and missions. It's not just about going into a town or a region and saying, hey, Jesus, love you, and passing out some Bibles and uh, having a youth rally or something and leaving. It's about doing something that we can impact the lives of the young people that are there and the children uh, through education, whether that can be uh, something that I propose that one of my parishioners is having a chess and mathematics club for our young men. You know, in the neighborhood, and it'll be open to anybody in the neighborhood, whether it's you know kids from the hood in the in that area or kids from the suburbs, and we get them all together and enrich their experience teaching them how to learn chess, teaching them mathematics. You know, young men in America are really suffering right now on both sides of the color conversation because of what has happened in our country through uh, uh, liberalism, socialism, uh, communism, uh, the male genders being uh, disregarded at many levels in our culture right now in America. And it's something I want to give back to see young men doing better being able to lead and give them the principles that are needed, they can become uh, great leaders for our community in the future. Well, I view this as the boomerang effect in a way, because every, I mean, everything is, the pendulum always swings so extreme and it never, it never lands in the middle. So I do see the one side that says, this is what men is. You work 60 hours a week. You, you're a tough guy. You know what I'm saying? And you're the head of the household and everyone needs to submit to you. And that ca- that did cause um, horrible view of masculinity, right? Right. Because, and I can, my family has this. Right. <laughs> so the pendulum swings and now it's right. like, if you're, you know, you and me are both alpha males, right? Like I'm a type eight Enneagram, right. like we're both alpha males. Right. So now we're the right. biggest piece of on the planet, Right. and we're just we're just doing what god put in us and so now that pendulum has swung so far that if you're like an alpha male you don't even know what to do because you are trying to protect your family you are trying to stick up for people but they take it as aggression and it's not aggression so i agree we got to find that balance to where it's like you support men and and show them the christ-like way of being a man because I see it on both sides. I see the right wing side being like a man is carrying an AR-15 down the streets. And I'm like, I don't think that's right. But on the other side, it's like, where are the men, you know, with their boys and stuff like that? So I agree, man. I'm glad you brought that up because that's that's the reason why I do post the way that I do. I love I it. Want I love it. 
when they meet me and they see me get the, even if at the social media level, get the full experience of understanding who I am. You know, I'm not the Eastern Orthodox priest with the long Gandalf beard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am very much so a man in the alpha male. I do enjoy sports. I love working out like this office that I have. The other half of my garage is my home gym. Yeah, it's good for you. <laughs> You know, and it's also good for you. And these these values, these principles, once enriched in your life and applied in your life, um, will do good for you. And I've had those experiences of, of being uh, shunned uh, sometimes by my peers or whatnot because of being so, you know, staunch and I'm not moving on the stance concerning these things. And that's I've always been that way. Me too. You know, I may be at peace now, but I'm no longer fighting. I'm no longer competing um, in bodybuilding, but there are some things that have stuck with me. And yeah. I have to admit that I do want to win. I am very driven about life and I love life and I want the full experience in that. And uh, I was talking to one of my parishioners about this earlier this morning. I get very disappointed um, when I speak to young men and they don't have the experiences that we've had. I mean, these guys don't see any sunlight they're inside on the internet all day excuse me all day on message boards uh researching on youtube they they don't have any interest <laughs> in i'm serious i know man. I mean, I know. no social understanding of cultivating relationships being cult comfortable around other young men they don't know how to talk to young women like these things are very Important to me. Then one of the worst things I think is that, and I understand, you know, this has happened to many of our our board of educations, but now with not having the money to support these programs, you know, you don't have the open gym programs. I know, yeah, more than we grew up with. So it's it's a lot of young men that do not have the needed uh, direction, and a lot of them, they, you know, their parents. I, I hate to say this, and please, no one come to my social media or visit our parish to, to argue with me or fight me about it but a lot of these um a lot of their parents excuse me came from that generation of the everybody gets a trophy generation right a participation trophy and that's something that um we just didn't do in our household i i was joking with my wife earlier today you know i played peewee soccer i think i was at six or seven years old and I didn't want to play ever again or touch another soccer ball because our team that year was my first year playing soccer. My team had lost every game except for two games. And one game was against the girls team. And even at that young age, I still counted that <laughs> as a loss because the score was so close. And I, and I, you know, I've always been, I've had that competitive spirit inside of me, even as a child that I just, I couldn't handle things like that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm hoping to see that there is a, a healthy turnaround. Right. Because um, you don't want to flip the, the pendulum again to the other side. Right. But, yeah. I, we don't need Andrew Tate, and we don't need a bunch of little Andrew Tates. Um, but there needs to be a middle ground of what there is, what, what it means to be a man. Right. Today in the 21st century. Amen. Hey guys, we hope you are enjoying this episode of the Zootown Podcast. Um, we just want to take a moment right now to remind you that likes, shares, 
uh, reviews. They go a huge way as far as getting the message out further into our community, but also abroad and into other communities. So if you value this conversation and past conversations that you have heard on this podcast, we ask that you take the time to actually go and give us five stars. Don't give us four. We need all of them. And uh, leave us a review. Thanks again for being listeners to this podcast and contributors and joining the conversation. Uh, I want to move on to orthodoxy, but two questions. What is your solution to systematic racism? Because I will say this. Like the word CRT, you know, critical race theory. I can't have, I can't have someone, I can't find someone to even explain what it is to me. Like, you know, and maybe I'm reaching the wrong people, but that word has triggered a lot of people now. And they're like, they're fighting that word. And so what I have seen is it seems like the more right-wing conservatives are looking to the government to fix this with laws. Um, And I don't, I don't really have an answer for that either, but they're both trying to, they're both trying to use the government to fix this. So um, since we live in the kingdom, which is a way higher and way weirder than the U S government, how, what is your solution to help fix systematic racism? Like how is someone listening to this podcast who um, white or not, I guess, what can they do to address this? That's not, that's not mean. That's not, you know, they don't go burn cities down. Like how, what can we do? I, I would say, number one, I'm not a fan of CRT in the state that it's in right now. I've seen um, you post on some things on it, though. Of course. Yeah. I've, I've intentionally taken the positives out of it. Right. And, Good point. And Good point. Share, I'll say that as a uh, preface of, of context. Right. I do not like how the CRT movement has taken uh, something like color-based race and coupled it with sexuality. That's my problem with CRT as it is. Uh, The color of my skin has nothing to do with the choice or feeling of someone's gender and sexuality at all. You can change um, your gender and your sexuality today at a drop of a hat. It doesn't take anything for you to do that. Uh, No matter what I do, I'm going to go to sleep black and I'm going to wake up black and I'm going to live the black experience, uh, even as a Latino for the rest of my life. I think where the solution is, and it's not in the government, it's going to have to begin with our families. Like you said, we are part of the kingdom of heaven. Being part of the kingdom of heaven is a otherworldly experience where the measure and marker of who we are is love. And it's a self-sacrificing love, a love that goes beyond any idea or thought or capacity that we have or what we think love is. So I think what we need to do as pastors, as fathers, as husbands, is we need to sit down with our families and objectively examine American history. There is a lot about our history that we romanticize. For example, our founding fathers. Right. Cause you mentioned the Turks, right? And so yeah. I'm sorry, I cut you off then. So okay. explain that okay. all the way through because I've been having a lot of these conversations with people because for mm-hmm. some reason, Americans think that God blessed us 200 years ago when we had right. slaves and we were killing Indians. 
Right. But now, 200 years later, because we have homosexuality and transgenderism, he's going to take his blessing from us. And I'm kind of like, that just doesn't line up with me. And now that I've actually studied the founding fathers, one, they were politicians. We forget that. Two, if they were really wanting a Christian nation, you would think the name Jesus would be in our Constitution. But finally, they were deists. Like, they were kind of Freemasons, they were deists, and so I'm not buying that they came over for religious freedom. I'm just not. There was a lot going on there. So explain that, like, walk that through, because you said we have rose-colored glasses for history. Right, not even even kind of, Pastor Scott. It's a complete mess. When you read the lives of the Founding Fathers, uh, some of these men were the most vile people that you would ever come into contact with and would not want a relationship with them. For example, right, yeah. we're around the same age. We're both Gen Xers. Uh, when I was a kid, I remember being taught that George Washington's teeth were made out of wood. wood yeah. And when I first heard it, I was like, how's that work? Okay. <laughs> yeah. And three minutes later, I was like, uh, that doesn't make any sense because wood rots. And how did he survive getting this implanted in his teeth at his time? And it not causing like infections or anything. Splinters in his tongue. Like, yeah. So then later on, you learn, you know, I learned later on as an adult and a dad later on that these were the teeth of slaves. So this is where the whole idea for me where racism in America, prejudice and bigotry don't add up. And when we address it, we have to address it primarily as a spiritual problem. It's a it's initially at first glance, it's a denial of the person of Jesus Christ and another individual. Right. I cannot write you and because you're white, say I hate you and say that you're less than human because of the color of your skin, but then at the same time enslave you. And I hate you so much and your people so much, but I'm still sleeping with your wife. I'm still sleeping with, well, I'm, I forget this is uncensored. I'm raping your wife. Yeah. I'm raping uh, your daughter and your your daughters and your sons. And if you cut out a line, I'm raping you in front of all of my slaves to set you as an example. So when you look at that, even that mode of thinking, it's really sexual deviancy is what it is. It's a perversion of human life and the human experience. Uh, deist beliefs have no relationship uh, to that of the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, he does, God just, he was a clockmaker for our audience. Deus, they believe God was like a clockmaker. He set the right. world into motion, but he doesn't have any interaction with it. That's George right. Washington. That's what these people believed. Ben Franklin. Right. And yeah. not only that, but that the male, the European male of privilege is the center of the universe. Yep. So this is where this whole idea of manifest destiny comes from, all this other nonsense. So I think we need to start there and then move forward. And there's like another thing that we experience in social studies class from fifth grade to high school, you know, the whole issue of racism and prejudice in America, the civil rights movement is about three paragraphs in all of our textbooks, not addressing the fact that uh, that history is a 400-year-long history mm-hmm. here in the Americas from our first founders. Of course, now, um, some of our conservative brethren are trying to now broadly wash over that, well, you know, your first slaves. Uh, We're Africans here in America, Uh, and that's true, yes, but the servitude or the the idea of slavery at that time was different, where I, you know, I remember a friend of mine sharing this with me years ago, and I finally read it for myself, 
how the first slaves here in America were the vagrants and criminals and outcasts in Europe that were sent here with no tools, with no instructions, and pretty much uh, we're going to send you here to the Americas instead of you finish up your time and you figure it out. And after the first two generations of uh, Western Europeans kept on dying and they finally figured out, okay, this is how you cultivate the land, that's when our founding fathers came. That's when the idea yes. slavery changed two and three generations later. So we have to, as with anything in life, I actually shared this um, with one of the people that my father is still a spiritual mentor to, um, and they started that whole rhetoric of God blessing America and God blessing Israel. And I said, how is that possible? I, you use the same thing that you did. Yep. I said, we have the complete genocide of Native American tribes in our nation. We have the enslaving and genocide of Black Americans. We have the treatment of the poor. Um, the nation state of Israel is now persecuting and killing Christians. Yes, they are. They are trying to wipe out the Beta Israel Ethiopians in Israel. Nothing of this consists of the blessings of God or even anything in relation to God. But that was but the I problem. That was the problem from Isaiah, right? I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. So then the right. Americans took that to the next level. And I, mm. the problem with that is what I'm finding, and again, I've stepped out of the evangelical system, so now I can look in. They right. don't really give a crap about the Jews. They, no. they want blessing. They want prosperity. They want God mm. not to have his wrath on them. And you Orthodox, you believe the the which I do too. The Church is Israel. It's an extension right. of Israel. So there is, there's no different covenant with Israel no. and us. It's the Church, and so the right. Americans latched onto this. And so my, my grandpa was like this. God rest his soul, you know. And he was a great guy. But it was all about like you know what we can't mess with Israel, and we got to stick up for Israel, or else God's going to turn on us. And I'm like. Right. Israel's not following Jesus. So what are we talking about here, right. right? So it still comes back to money and blessings and power. That's why we want to support Israel. I and I brought this up to this group of people and they uh it it shifted the uh the atmosphere of the of the conversation. I'm sure, man. I've had that Sunday afternoon I said, you know, you guys have to take out the time to really really examine what you believe and why you believe it. I said, there's a lot within your faith, uh, being non-denominational, being charismatic, being evangelical, that does not fit the standard of the New Testament church. No way. And the whole book of Galatians was Paul saying, there mm -hmm. is no more Jew or Greek, male or female, right. slave or free. Like, we're all one. The whole book of Galatians was trying to bring those together, that the church is Israel. Absolutely. Or Israel right. was the church. You know? Right. So and, and, and St. Paul writes it himself. He says, to the new Israel of God. Right, right. Speaking of the Galatian church, so we have to, I, I think where, where the issue is, is accountability. Um, like, I love my father with all my heart. Um, he's not only my dad, he's also one of my closest friends. But I, he's, he comes to every service at St. Simon's hmm. at my marriage but at the same time still entertains or is still mentoring uh, his former members that he pastored 
as if he's still uh, pastoring. And one lady that was in the group had said to me, said, I wish that someone had shared with me what you did years earlier because I feel robbed. Yeah. And, you know, even though it affected my father, I had to tell the truth. I said, your ignorance of the church is because of the ignorance of your pastor, his ignorance of the church. Yeah. And we have to be responsible of what we're teaching, why we're, you know, why we're teaching and preaching this thing. And what is the outcome uh, from this? I was sharing with the group that I catechized last night. I said, you know, there's there's some parts of recognizing and understanding who the Orthodox Church is that we can argue and say, you should come to this conclusion by human reason and your personal thinking. Like if we examine church history yes. and this evidence, just evidence. It's, <laughs> yeah. It's right there. The evidence is there clear as day, but at the same time I shared with her, I said, you have to remember that this evidence is only illumined in your heart and your mind by the Holy Spirit. So every time God says messengers to us to tear down I, what our idea is of the kingdom of heaven or what our idea is of the church, as soon as we hear that message, we build that wall right back up right. because of this comfort that comes with it. And this is why I'm so excited about uh, Zootown Church. I'm excited about your ministry and what you're doing because you're one of many pastors that are going beyond that wall and is daring to say, like, look, Lord, I want to see all of who you are. I want to see all of who the church is, what the kingdom of heaven is. That's incredible. Well, and it was, yeah, we'll get into, we'll get into this in a minute. It, just, it was the logic side of it, really, the evidence and the logic. But two things real quick before we end on this, uh, move on to orthodoxy. What I've realized is I've, I, and I repent for this, I have confused patriotism and nationalism. So patriotism right. recognizes, hey, we're all screwed up. We're sinners, but there are some good things that have come from this. And I love Montana. Like, I love Montana, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I love our history and all that. Nationalism is when America is better than everyone else and we're right. God's chosen nation and right. we will literally kill people to prove it. So, you know, right. you've seen it. Trump, uh, Marjorie Green, you know, she five years ago, it went from we're not Christian nationalists to now. Yeah, we're Christian nationalists. What of it? You know, so it's shifted big time since Trump got in office. So will you, how do you view the difference between patriotism? Cause you were in the air force and Christian nationalism. And do you see the danger of Christian nationalism? Absolutely. I'll start off with Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism for me is a breath away <clears throat> from, and for some people, this might be a bit abrasive, but Christian nationalism is a breath away from accepting the mind of the Antichrist. Hmm. And I, I'm, sharing, I'm sharing that in the sense of the scriptural context of what Antichrist theology or belief is. And it's anything that stands in the place of Christ as Christ. So this idea of Christian nationalism in America that yes, we are the greatest nation in the world, we have the greatest uh, military, we have the greatest people, and God has blessed us, means, underlyingly, that we will not take any accountability of our actions, right. how those actions felt might affect people, other nations, our own people, 
and we're doing this all in the name of Christ. So it goes back to what God's you on our side. God's on our side. And so therefore, and, and yeah, so then this does come from Calvinism. Even if people aren't Calvinists, they don't recognize this. But right. Calvinists believe, they, Calvinism starts with exclusion. Some people are out. Okay. Right. So then when you think you're in and you've been chosen, mm-hmm. that means since you believe in a God of wrath, you and he hates retrobates, then you feel right. justified in hurting other people who aren't chosen, right? Like exactly. the Muslims and all kinds of stuff. So that's, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that's a, something Lord spoke to my heart okay. recently. No, that's yeah. okay. That's exactly where it goes. Yeah. And now that list of people are now getting broader. You know, we're all sinners. Christ calls us all to repentance. And I want to preface this with saying I'm not some progressive Orthodox priest, but this is like why time progresses. The the hate list gets bigger and bigger. So now we don't hate uh, Black people and Native Americans. We want them in as part of this Christian nationalism movement because it helps with us. Our, it helps us with us. Uh, helps us, excuse me, politically. But now it's our hate is turned towards. Uh, the lesbian, the gay, the transgender. Liberals, yeah, liberals. You know, liberals. Um, and we we don't have an idea of what Christ-like, Christ-like love looks like. So I've truly learned what it means to hate the sin and love the person here in the church. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. It's, it's okay to call someone to repentance and be accountable um for their actions but that does not change the fact of whether or not i love you and i'm going to share the love that i have uh for you in christ and we can be homies we can be homies even if you don't change you know right yeah right i'm still gonna love you i'm gonna pray for you and i'm gonna pray that the holy spirit troubles your heart and your mind that you come to a place of um of repentance but that, that's where I stand on these things. Whereas patriotism, everyone has a right to love and to stand for the perseverance of their country. Yeah. Everyone has a right to do that. You have, like, it's even when I address these issues of matters on race, uh, prejudice, bigotry, uh, white supremacy, even the treatment of the poor, of uh, the orphans, a single mother, for me, all those are all attached. And I address them because I love our nation so much that I know it can be better. Mm-hmm. And that's just at the social and political level, even at the religious level. You know, I'm in urban missions. You know, I'm a, I'm a missionary uh, priest. I even look at it and how I share orthodoxy with people that I come into interaction with. You know, I met a family, an Ethiopian family that was traveling all the way to New York. Uh, from Central Jersey just to go uh, to church on Sunday, and I tracked them down in Costco of all places. (laughs) Magical things happen at Costco. I have had many experiences there. (laughs) Come to our parish. You're supposed to be visiting us soon. You have to put yourself in in a place where you're always present in the now, present in in the moment where God can use you to really show somebody love, which is like the entrance to the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Pastor Scott, when you visit St. Simon's, the first icon that you see is the icon of the uh, holy apostle and deacon, St. Philip, speaking to St. Dejan Darda, 
the Nubian eunuch. I know in the Bible it says... No, Ethiopia. he's from Ethiopia. What are you talking about? The 49 times that the nation Ethiopia is mentioned in the Bible, it's not referring to Ethiopia, it's referring to Africans. Mm -hmm. But I, we place it there as the first icon that you see because his response to hearing the gospel from St. Philip is what we all should have coming into the church. He doesn't try to pontificate himself and you know he's reading the book of the prophet Isaiah. So obviously he's familiar with scripture. We find out in holy tradition later on that he was sent to Palestine to offer gifts to the Messiah and he just got there late. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, he got there late. Huh. So the Messiah already has offered his life, died, resurrected, ascended, and he's trying to figure out, well, what happened? No way. I did not know that. Yeah. So St. Philip opens up the gospel to him, but the first thing that he says when Philip asked him, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how could I know unless someone teaches me? And today, culturally, we don't have that mindset. We come to our places of worship, especially now with the advent of the internet, when anybody can research on YouTube. We have so much information, but yet we're the most ignorant generation of, of, our, of the time of our, our, our country or in history. Yeah, We need more teachers, but more importantly, we need when we come to Christ to be pliable, humble, to put on love and say, you know what? I don't know everything. I need someone to teach me. Will you teach me? Uh, and after that, I, we have the icon of St. Moses the Strong, who then is an example to us for humility mm. and a transformed life. This man used to be a thug and led a band of bandits up and down the Nile River Valley where they were robbing raping and murdering people and later on in his life he becomes a monk one of the most honored desert fathers and ends up leading now a group of monks whom he offered his life for greater love at no man than this than to lay down his life for his friend this man lived the gospel so these are key things that we place in our mission parish so that the seeker can see the gospel alive and keep those two principles uh ever more so in their hearts and in their minds, you know, when they come to worship and pray with us. And then when they leave, and like the church fathers say, the liturgy truly begins after the benediction of the divine liturgy. It's when we go back into the world and can share with the world what we receive, yeah. Christ, in the Eucharist. Right. And so, and that was, I mean, that's St. Moses the Black. Was that also his name? Yeah. And yes. you just celebrated his feast on Sunday, I think? Yes. And he also said at the end of his life, the more you grow to Christ, paraphrase, the less you start judging people because you see how yes. messed up you are. <laughs> so my point with that is, is that's nationalism. Nationalism yes. is law and order. It's law and mm. order. Mm. It's so, and the, the thing with law and order is you, you don't, you, you start, you don't look at people as human when you do that. No. And there's a church in town here who's known yeah. as the nationalistic law and order church. They are, they hate my guts. That's fine. Um, <laughs> But I've listened to this guy, and he uses all the buzzwords. He'll say, like, China virus instead of COVID, you know, coronavirus. <laughs> we live in a liberal town, and all he does is trash liberals. And I'm like, imagine if there's a Chinese person sitting in your congregation, and you say China virus. 
right. just to rally your base. And just, and I'm like, you don't love that person. You do not right. love that person. You are following Donald Trump, not Jesus Christ. Right. And that's how right. I see nationalism blinding people to the kingdom of God, right. really. So I've realized that, too. I am a patriot. I used to say I'm not a patriot. I am a huh. patriot because I love Montana and I love America right. because I want the people of America to know God. So right. that's how I differentiate from nationalism and patriotism now. But I just you thought that was a good that. word from you because you were in the military. And so you can yeah. actually see the bad parts of it, too. So. All right. So let's talk orthodoxy. Um, one of the things that has been said, not just by one person, but a couple people when I left evangelicalism was that I left the church. <laughs> I'm not even joking, man. I've been told I have left the church. And uh, same church brought in a guy to prove I'm a heretic and all that stuff, and he trashed the creeds. And basically the sentiment out there is that the Eastern Orthodox gave too much into philosophy and... They perverted the gospel. <laughs> That's a long, uh, short explanation for a long story. But um, what drew you to orthodoxy, and why do you believe orthodoxy is the true church? Um, Father Jarmus has walked me all the way back to Alexandria, to Jerusalem, to Rome. So I believe that. But why do you believe that? And two, how have your African brothers and sisters received you? as a big ass black dude being an Orthodox priest. <laughs> Two good questions. Yeah. Okay. So number one for me, it, my, what spurred my, uh, my interest in the church, of course, was that sermon that I shared with you about. Mm -hmm. But after that, I started to really question, um, and not in any anger, I wasn't disgruntled or anything on why we worship the way that we do. Like as a kid, I was about 11 or 12 years old. I went to my sister's God, uh, God, I mean, God, brother and sisters, uh, first communion. And the cantor at this Roman Catholic parish had the most beautiful voice. At the age of 11 or 12, I can recognize the presence of the Holy Spirit just wasn't the entertainment of his voice. I could tangibly feel the presence of God. I said to my dad, I said, you know, why do they worship the way that they do? Like, we, we're, we both love Jesus. We serve Jesus. And I got the typical non-denominational answer. Don't worry about it. They're pagans. And then my, my second question was, well, why are there pagans? And the question never got answered. Yeah. Um, after seeing the constant lack of unity among Protestants. Like that group I was telling you about with my father, I had shared this with them. There were about 20 of them at my home. And I said, if I, if we went around the room and if I asked each of you, clear, concise, plain, dogmatical, and doctrinal questions concerning what you believed and what you affirmed of the Christian faith, I promise you for a fact that you all will disagree at some one point or another. Right. And they got their attention and they stopped. I said, that was the main thing that drew me to the Orthodox Church when I started looking into the church, was that if Christ had established his community of believers through the apostles and the apostles leading 
those multitudes of people after his ascension. And he promised the church that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Then I have to start looking for that community because I can see where the gates of hell, where human error has prevailed against the Protestant confessions, the, like what, the 13,000 different Protestant denominations slash confessions that we have here in the West. Right. As when Father you, German says, you guys lost, you gave up one Pope and now you have a million. Yes. Every and evangelical a, pastor thinks they have the truth. Right. You know, they're, they're interpreting the Bible, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. No. Right. He's absolutely true. He's absolutely true. Um, in sharing that, it's like something I, I shared a social media post yesterday where I said, if, and I'm saying it generally, if we examined what is left of the apostolic communities that were established by the apostles 2,000 years ago, because some of them we know through history, like the Nubian church, uh, was lost to uh, Muslim raping and pillaging of that of the region of Nubia, right? Mm -hmm. After 600-year uh, history. Um, if you examine these churches, these communities, and you see 2,000 years later, they are still worshiping the same way. They are still believing the same way. They are still keeping the same faith and tradition. And then I look at the average non-denominational place of worship in my hometown. And in the past 30 years, they've gone through so many changes yeah, yeah. on their doctrinal positions, what they believe and affirm. I'm just based on, like you said, human reason and thinking, I'm seeing two completely different communities. Yeah, and on the other side of it, I'm almost like, we're almost in two different religions at this point. We are. Like, that's what I'm, and I had to get out. Like, even as I told you on DMs that I, it's it's not heaven or hell. <laughs> they always make it about that. It's, it's the atonement theory, the penal substitution right. atonement theory. That right. is the hinge point, that if you think God destroyed his own son so he wouldn't have to destroy you, that's actually the hinge point. But... No, outside of that, they all can't get along. They just can't get no. along. And so we live in Missoula where people go from two, three, four, five different churches because they've been trained in America that it's all about you. It's all about your individual rights. It's all about your prosperity. And as soon as you don't like something, you leave the community. I mean, it's like, I don't see that in orthodoxy. <laughs> you know, I just don't. That, that very same sentiment is anti-church. The church has always been a community of people. So there's no room for the individual to address themselves in their pronouns, speaking of I, me, my interest, what <laughs> you want yeah. uh, at any time. You know, I can't be saved without you, Pastor Scott. I need you. Right. I need your family. I need your worship community for us all to be saved. That was the New Testament idea of salvation. Our Father. Our right. transgressions. Jesus never right. said you. He said our, right. us. Not at any time. Yep. You know, does is the individual address. But, you know, after uh, looking at these things, I don't regret a thing. I do not regret becoming Orthodox. I do not regret be, being a priest uh, any Eastern Orthodox church. But it, it goes back to, and I'm glad you said, you just mentioned how 
Now looking at it, we're seeing two different religions, and it's the truth. We have, as Christians, we have to love Christ more than salvation. Right. That's Thomas Hopko. Like, right. You know, evangelicals are hell-bent on hell. Right. And it's just a get-out-of-hell-free card, so you say the prayer, but you don't actually have to do anything Jesus said on this, like, in his life, no. right? And that's, I shared it with this group. I said, it's microwave salvation. Mm. I said, mm. a boring evangelist comes into your town, and you gave your life to the Lord under that understanding. I said, who was there to teach you how to learn what it meant to be a Christian? I said, we see this in the book of Acts. St. Luke writes that daily the church gathered together, again, community, what? Breaking bread, singing psalms, and offering, offering thanksgiving, keeping what? The apostles' doctrine. So they didn't go, like, they didn't have their KGB Bible and say, you know, we're going to turn. <laughs> there were no chapters and verses. <laughs> right. No, they're directly hearing from the apostles who directly heard from Christ. And the tradition that they received was born out of the temple, the second temple tradition. And they all lived it. So when you see 15, 20 years later, one of the apostles are writing an epistle they're writing uh, to a specific community to bring a solution to a specific problem, or in the sense of the book of Corinthians, first, first and second Corinthians, where, where is actually a recorded sermon of St. Paul's. And when you see this, it changes your perspective of the, of the scriptures. Right. The only thing that makes you hold on to that is cognitive dissonance. Yeah, and fundamentalism. It's just fundamentalism. Yeah. And I just, I, a, so I'll give you an example of fundamentalism, how funny it is and so nonsensical. So all the student debts just got, or not, some, some student debts just got forgiven. Mm. Now, that is an Old Testament principle, right? right? So what I'm seeing is a lot of right-wing fundamentalists are against canceling right. debts. Right. Why, if you take the Bible literal? Right. <laughs> right. But secondly, you know, though, I also see it right. on the other side. I'm watching a lot of liberal progressive Christians post about this. Well, right. if that's true, then you better be giving your 10% tied to the church every week, too, because that's also an Old Testament principle. So right. that's why I can't stand certain evangelical principles, because it's so illogical, because they, you pick and choose. You pick and choose right. what you want to do. Like, you'll take one passage literal and one passage not, and it's just the Orthodox Church has done a great job at showing the spiritual of the scriptures. Right. So would you say that what is the thing, you mentioned just the, the the unity of the church, would that be the main thing that made you believe that uh, this is the true church? I want to say it was the main thing, it was the primary thing or the initial thing. What solidified it for me was seeing the divine liturgy for the first time and coming to the liturgy of the Eucharist and seeing faithful receive the Eucharist. And I remember my eyes being so fixated on the altar and I was looking at the iconostasis, uh, that wall of icons mm -hmm. in front of the altar, that I saw Revelation chapters one through four open up to me. Right. Like as fundamentalists, we were taught that the book of Revelation is a end time prophetical. Yeah. It's not. 
Oh, it's it starts. Not. I love how it starts out with this is the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is the right. revelation, which means this is happened. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not only that, but the, the first four chapters of the book are doxological experiences. It's about worship. Secondarily, it's an apocalyptic book. And even in those apocalyptic themes, those themes mean certain things and have nothing to do with the end of the age, the end of the Ameri- the men of the United States of America, right. Um, right. the beginning of the new world order, the demise of Israel, none of that. This century has to do with the person of Jesus Christ. And, and John, St. John the Divine, St. John the Theologian makes it clear. He says the evil one is defeated. Right. That we are kings and princes, and we will reign. There, you know, when I, I and was, her I was, gates are never shut, okay. never, right, never mm-hmm. shut. And the spirit and the bride right. say, "Come, yeah, right." Yeah. So we're we're talking, we're talking about the the penultimate experience of the New Testament church. The volume of the New Testament closes, but it remains open. When St. John says unto the Lord, even so, Lord, come quickly. (laughs) And he's calling those seven churches that are under his archpastoral authority to what? Repentance. And and this is like what I had to uh, share with this group of people. As I said to them that uh, first a salvation has to be about love of Christ before escaping hell. Mm -hmm. That also you know, for my charismatic brothers and sisters that are going to be listening to this podcast, uh, the casting out of demons, the healing of the sick, the raising of the dead, deliverance ministry are, are not markers of the kingdom of heaven. They are markers of evangelism of the kingdom of heaven. This is why we have these constant mention of miracles uh, among the Jews and the Gentiles in the Gospels, and later on the few that are mentioned in the epistles, these supernatural things happen as a marker for the unbeliever. Right. So they can see the fruit of the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom of heaven, there is healing. In the kingdom of heaven, there is liberation. In the kingdom of heaven, there is salvation. In the kingdom of heaven, there is deliverance. You are free from the bondage of sin and death and demonic activity in the kingdom, and you get it how? Mm-hmm. In the off of your flesh, on your cooperating with Christ through the grace of the Holy Spirit, so that what? That you can mature into becoming who he is by nature, by grace. Amen. And I, I share with them, this is not, salvation is not about morals and ethics. No. You don't need to be a Christian to be a moral and ethical person. We have atheists, uh, Muslims, Buddhists, whatever faith that you can think of that are great moral and ethical people. The Christian life is about divinity, right. not right. And forgive me if I'm wrong. So my, my counselor, my therapist is the Eastern Orthodox, and uh, he just said, you got to stop trying to be such a good Christian. Because <laughs> yeah. he goes, then it's fake. He goes, yes. he, says, you, he goes, you evangelicals, you're always just trying to show you're a Christian. Right. And he goes, so then what you do is you build up your pride and your ego and all that stuff. And I'm like, that's yeah. so true. 
That is, is so true. I've spent a lot of time trying to prove I'm a good Christian because evangelicals mm-hmm. want to see that you're right. a good Christian. And it Absolutely. it just wasn't working. And so would you say that like the goal Okay, what's the goal? What's the goal? Like the meaning goal is to, meaning is right. salvation becoming something new or is it becoming who you were meant to be in Christ? Cuz that's Both. a big difference. Yeah. The, the new thing is that we're becoming Christ through baptism and chrismation just like Christ promised and shared with Nicodemus. Unless a man be born of water and spirit, he can enter into the kingdom of heaven. We are born again through the sacrament of baptism. We are sealed with the grace of the Holy Spirit with chrismation. And we're beginning the path of becoming something new, but something that we already were with potential in our foreparents, in our foreparents, Adam and Eve. Right. They were created according to the works of St. Gregory of Nisa. They were created with the potential of full sanctification and holiness, hmm. the potential. But over time, in grace, in their relationship with Christ, they would mature into that. So Christ's coming from the incarnation, his ministry, the offering of his life, his resurrection, his ascension, that totality of that experience restores all of humanity in Christ back into right relationship with the Father so that as long as we submit ourselves to him and cooperate with him, what? We get the full experience of the of the kingdom of heaven in him. That's what it really means yeah, to yeah. pray. In him. <laughs> in the name of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. It's not simply reaching out your hand to someone and saying, in the name of Jesus. Like the sons of Sceva learned that in the book of Acts. They thought praying in the name of Jesus was no different than an incantation. Yeah, it's like a no, magic spell. Right. No, there's a lifestyle behind that. Mm-hmm. At the same chrism, or in our language, the same anointing that was on Christ now rests on us. Why? Because we're in him. Yep. And it's not Pastor Scott's ministry. It's not Father Samuel's ministry. I'm not the one that's doing the healing miracle and the wonder working. It's the grace of the Holy Spirit through us that is ministering to the needs of the people and uh, ministering to whatever need that it may have in that moment. And that's what I love when when Paul says, let me tell you a mystery from before, the Christ in you, the hope right. of glory. The hope of glory. <laughs> you know, and I just love that because he's like, God, he's like, man, all humanity has Christ in them. We're right. just not listening, <laughs> you know, right. and I love that. So how has your uh, black brothers and sisters received you going into orthodoxy? Because in America, most black people are usually ba- Baptists. I would just say Protestant. Generally. Protestant. Okay, yeah. So how how did it that did. go, bro? It didn't go great at all. It did not go great at all. I, there was one pastor, um, who I understood what he was saying. But was very disappointed to hear what he did say. He said, "You know, always come around and uh, let us see how you're doing because we're watching you and oh, we're observing." Oh gosh what's going on with you in the church. But he, and he said it in a positive manner. He said, but uh, if you don't come around, we'll just know you went to go be with the white folks. And I kind of looked at him like, what? But I understood what he was saying. Mm-hmm. It was like, you know, because of our ignorance, this, this is where the levels of the ignorance of the church come from, that because of this experience of racism and prejudice, this conversation is still at the base level speaking about race and not divine things. But um, when this whole idea of apostolic succession has come up, 
among Vagantes that are Pentecostal and Baptist. Um, I've received weird looks, um, very condescending looks because like, who is this guy? What is he wearing? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm who you want to be. You know, and I've, I don't hold anything back. I've shared that with some bishops, quote unquote bishops who are pastoring 500, 800, 3000 people. I've said that this idea that you have a, of apostolic succession is not true. Yeah. Um, I said, I said to them, like, I will never say this publicly in your place of worship to deface you, but you are responsible for what you claim. And that's, that's a part of pride. If I want to call it pride that I have been an Orthodox Christian is that I'm not faking or perpetuating something that I'm not, I didn't go the cheap way like many independent pastors are, and they're going on uh, Orthodox websites and outfitters and getting cassocks made oh, or wow. getting crosses made uh, to have a look where being an Orthodox Christian is not about what we wear, not about what we eat, it's what we live. That's what the kingdom of heaven is about. Yeah. Um, so it's my prayer uh, for the rest of my vocation as a priest that I have the opportunity uh, not only to share uh, the gospel from the tradition of the Orthodox Church to all Americans, but to Black America, to Black Americans, West Indians, Caribbeans, uh, Latinos, Afro-Latinos like myself, that are so far uh, from the ancient church and their tradition. Uh, my prayer is that, I, that the platform is built, is built that's needed to do that. Yeah, and you know what blew my mind, bro? And I didn't even know this. I mean, it's probably white supremacy, but like a lot of those pictures of the early church fathers, they're like white dudes. Like Augustine was a black dude from Africa. Yeah. <laughs> like I didn't even know that. <laughs> like all yeah. these guys. And I've been like, why did they paint them this way? You know, it's just really odd. But now well, it's... The tradition, the tradition of iconography, and I've had to deal with this. The tradition of iconography allows for that. Uh, if you're in Russia, you are permitted because of the tradition of iconography to write icons that look like your people. Like if we go to Japan, you will see Japanese icons of our Lord and his mother. Huh. They look beautiful. Uh, they're still canonical. Um, but we know that our Lord was not and his mother were not Japanese. Um, they were first century Jews. And because of so much of the intermixing of Jews, uh, we see this through Egyptian hieroglyphics, that they were most likely brown-skinned uh, people, especially the common, I, I use the term, the common apostles like the fishermen, who at best had a fifth-grade level mm -hmm. education, mm -hmm. did not get intermixed uh, with high-society Romans, and before that, the Hasmonean Greeks during the Maccabean period. Right. Well, yeah. So, okay, speed round. Ready? All right, let's go. You used to train, used to fight, used to be a fighter. Yeah. Um, how do you reconcile that now as an Orthodox priest? And <laughs> why'd you stop fighting? Because <laughs> I want to see, well, okay, I'll be honest. I want to see you <laughs> go fight 
in your Cossack. And, and that would be like, it would almost be like a real WWE because <laughs> right. you're not faking it. But So why, right. what, what, uh, what drew you to that and what, how do you feel about that now? Well, what, what drew me to fighting was the, the father-son experience that I had with my dad as a kid in the 80s. Uh, watching Wild World of Sports. You know, there wasn't really pay-per-view at this time. Mm-hmm. And everybody in America watched boxing on Saturday mornings on Wild World of Sports from like either full fights or clips of championship fights that you didn't see during the week without uh, cable TV. And that experience and, uh, you know, my love and my dad's love for boxing is what got me into fighting. Um, what stopped me from fighting is... Uh, I, you know, I felt so healthy. I didn't know that for so long I had high blood pressure and it destroyed my kidneys. So I went from being an amateur MMA fighter to a pro boxer at my second fight. Uh, Virgil Hill was present. Uh, oh, wow. Silver medalist, two-time uh, cruiserweight champion. I think mm-hmm. one time like heavyweight champion was my manager. And he was like, you know, kid, you're wasting your time. Uh, doing MMA, MMA fighters do not make money. He said, you can be a multimillionaire next year. Boxing, so I said, do it. And um, he asked me, what was my goal? And I said, my goal was, I want to earn between now and my first two years in the heavyweight division, $20 million and get a title shot. And then I'm walking away from the sport. Whether I win the title or not, I'm walking away, I'm done. And he said, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, that's all that I want. And, um, that was around September, October. I was supposed to fight in December. The fight didn't happen. Um, we couldn't find an opponent. And uh, the fight was postponed to my birthday weekend in March of um, 2012. And, you know, at the professional level, you have to take blood uh, in New Jersey. You have to take um, a blood test mm-hmm. for HIV. I've seen all that. And that's when I found out that my kidneys were failing. I had about 28% uh, kidney function at that time. Um, I ugly cried home. Uh, This lifestyle that I built up in front of Christ uh, was over and I hated that it was over. But I, my, I, I look at my life as a testimony on how God will get what he wants out of your life. Um, No matter how rebellious that you're being, he's going to get what he wants. (laughs) And, uh, I don't fight now because if I did get into a fight with someone as a priest, I lose my collar. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a good reason. Right. <laughs> I, I, I often Christ. feel that same way. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so in 1979, the evangelicals got together and did a Chicago uh-huh. council on the Bible. A uh, little unknown uh-huh. fact is it was pretty much all Calvinists and they excluded okay. anyone who wasn't Calvinist from that. Um, and they deemed that the Bible was inerrant and perfect, even though they put caveats to that because we don't have any of the original translations and they still said it's up to interpretation. So, but that basically made the Bible, uh, I don't, I want to say this gently because I do believe the Bible's an authority. I'm not, it's, it's the authoritative book, but it made it a weapon in a way. So you, I've read the early church fathers a lot, but how, what's your view? as an Orthodox on the Bible, is it an errant meaning the evangelical way of it's perfect and it's literal? No, I do not hold that view. I will say it's sacred. Uh, it is the authority in the church, but not the authority as evangelicals see 
in the church. Uh, to the Eastern Orthodox Christian, we're not going to separate the Bible from its tradition. So, for example, and I know if you've read this already, but to your viewers, mm -hmm. we don't have a Bible without apostolic tradition. We don't have a canon of Old Testament and New Testament scripture without the apostles' doctrine, holy tradition. And your Old so Testament's still open, right? Your Old Testament canon exactly. is open. It's not closed. Right. Yeah. So we have to we have to examine these things and look at them again, like I shared earlier, and really stop the typical evangelical thinking and trope of, well, I believe this because Pastor Jim down the street said it, and that makes it right. Um, we have to hold ourselves accountable as Christians and be able to look and say, well, how did the Bible develop? And not this lack of uh, of an understanding of, of church history and denying education and intellectualism. Like the lower right. you go, I'm serious. No, 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 I'm with you, dude. I'm with you. One of my biggest pet peeves, like the lower you get on the fundamentalist ladder, the more ignorant and uneducated that you get. And it's like, you know, anything that has to do with picking up a book, education, intelligence is frowned upon um, just because of a lack, uh, and I won't say a lack of intelligence, but I would say maybe a um, insecurity of intelligence. Um, most of our fundamentalist groups and families are not from uh, the most educated areas in our country. Uh, you're talking about the, the country, deep south, deep midwest, where these tent revivals uh, happen. I will not deny the occurrences that happen in these tent revivals. Yeah, God I've loves seen, them. God loves them. Yeah. And not only that, but I've seen the charismatic happen. I've seen people healed in front of my own eyes. I've seen people um, have demons exercised from them. In front of my face, as young as five, six years old, like these experiences are are fused into my eyes and brain. Um, how extraordinary and crazy those experiences can be. <clears throat> so I think it's really like the first step of really understanding these things is just putting off fundamentalism. Right, because really that's works. where evangelicals are trained with that book, Systematic Theology. And the interesting mm -hmm. thing about that book is when you read it, it's not Wayne Grudem, I can't remember the other guy, but uh, he says, well, if this is true, then this is true. He literally right. says that in that book. So, but what if the beginning wasn't true of what he was talking about? And then it spirals down there. And so really it was a way to box God in and system systematically put God in a box. So right. that way you can actually control him and then use him to oppress other people. That's really what that came down to. So how do you read the Bible then? Like I know the Orthodox, again, this is for our viewers, but the Orthodox believe Jesus is the word of God. Like, it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not Father, Son, and Holy Bible. So how right. do you how do you read the Bible from a non-fundamentalist way through the lens of Jesus? Well, for me, it, it began with unlearning a lot of the things that were taught. And I want to refer back to Jordan Bages' book, Common Ground. And he mentions like how as Americans, you know, we pick up the Bible and read the Bible just like we're picking up any book or magazine or newspaper. Hmm. And we have to remember that the writers of the New Testament are Eastern people. Uh, for the most part, they're Palestinians, except for uh, Luke, who's Greek. 
Um, they're writing to other Eastern people that speak an Eastern language that is so foreign to English in the context of Eastern culture and time. So, excuse me, you know, there are some things that we read in the Bible and we've interpreted for years that were just completely wrong. Like, for example, the text concerning um, the difference between the righteous and the unrighteous on the left and right of Christ have nothing to do with the believer and unbeliever. It has to deal with wicked and righteous celestial beings mm -hmm. in the counsel of God. Right. I didn't know that as a Protestant growing up. I didn't know that as a youth pastor and pastor, you know. And that came uh, from the Tower of Babel. Like after the Tower of Babel, nations were assigned certain entities and demons, basically. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, so there, there's there. We have to look at the scripture in that cultural context first, and be able to measure that, and then after that, uh, be able to look at the scriptures through the experience of holy tradition. Mm -hmm. What were the things that Christ taught the apostles for those forty days before his ascension that late Saint Luke writes about? Uh, that Christ taught the apostles things concerning the kingdom of heaven. And these are traceable, identifiable, measurable things that we can look up and appreciate. Right on. Yep. Well, we are at an hour and 50. So okay. we're going to bring you on again, man. We're going to bring you on again. So then we can get down into some more theological uh, worldview type of stuff. Um, awesome. Because you do bring a different lens to, if you're from Panama, but you're, I mean, you just bring a really good, well-rounded lens. So uh, for our listeners, we're going to bring them on again. And thank you so much for joining us, Father. Thank you, Pastor Scott. See you soon. We love will, you, brother. Yeah, I love you too. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye.